So we're on page 53 of the Luke's book, and we're starting at verse 11 of chapter 15. Page 53. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hands and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called, out, he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. There are not many things in life more heart-wrenching than the breakdown of precious relationships. Sometimes it follows a huge argument. I got a call once from the teenage daughter of a couple who were in the middle of a blazing row. She was asking me to go round, and on the other end of the phone, I could hear her parents shouting at each other at the top of their voices. When I arrived at the house just a little bit later, the husband was on the verge of storming out, and the wife was wishing him to go. In their fury, they said the most hurtful things to each other. A blazing row, 
and their relationship was in tatters. Well, you know, I suspect their relationship wasn't in great shape before their shouting match. And then sometimes relationships just drift apart. There's no big crisis. A friend will say, we just don't talk anymore. Or a husband said to me once, there's no one else involved. I just don't love her anymore. In fact, I'm not sure I ever did. Hot-headed blazing row or cold-hearted gradual distancing. Either way, the relationship has ended and it hurts. And this story in Luke chapter 15 is about broken relationships. Last week, we saw the youngest son in the family saying some horrible and hurtful things to his father and then storming out. This week, it's the older son. And a relationship that to all intents and purposes looked good until he blew his top one day. And then it became clear that long before his outburst, his relationship with his father was just as broken and just as distant as the relationship between his younger brother and their father had ever been. And what we see in these two sons and their father, we can see in all of us with God, the heavenly father. If you've been here the last couple of weeks, you'll recall that Jesus told this story because people were outraged by Jesus's actions. Look back with me to uh, chapter 15 and verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to Jesus and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Jesus was friends with people who turned their back on God, the sorts who, like the youngest son in the story that we saw last week, at some point in their lives, one way or another, have tried to get as far away from God as they can. But now, just like the younger son in the story, they'd come back to their senses and, and come back to God because they found in Jesus the God who would not only have them back, but would actually welcome them back. There it is in verse 1, tax collectors and sinners, the last people you'd expect to find at church on a Sunday and come, for the, come to that, the last person you'd expect to see them on a Tuesday in church. Tax collectors and sinners were befriended by Jesus. Jesus welcomed people who had done seriously wrong things. Some of them were city guys who ignored FCA regulations in order to get rich, and in the process, they ruined others. Guys like Bernie Madoff, the American financier, who was the mastermind behind the largest Ponzi scheme in history, worth nearly $65 billion, defrauding thousands of investors of huge sums of money and ruining many, many lives. Jesus was friends with people like that people who selfishly used and abused others. And so as Jesus publicly demonstrated his friendship with these guys, the most religious people of the day, the Pharisees and scribes, were seething, verse 2, how can this man receive, how can he welcome tax collectors and sinners after all the misery they've caused? And so Jesus told this story. And as we considered last week, the two sons in the story are a brilliant cameo of the two groups of people in verses one and two. Last week, we saw how the younger son in the story, the prodigal son, as he's so often called, represented the tax collectors and sinners. But at the end of the story, there's another son, the elder son. He represents the Pharisees and the scribes in verse two. Religious and respectable, pillars of the community, people you'd love to have living next door to you. They'd be great neighbors. And moral, upright, never in trouble with the police, part of the neighborhood watch group. Go away on your holidays and they keep an eye on your property for you. And if you ask them, they'd feed the cat too. And of course, they'd always be at church on Sunday, religiously, if you'll pardon the pun. And so as we pick up the story where we left off last week, it's these upright religious people represented by the older son who become the focus of attention. And the first point on the outline, the self-serving son. 
In verse 25, you'll see he's out in a field. He's been working hard all day, just as he always did. Oh, you'd love him to be part of your team in the city. He was reliable, never late, always hardworking, respected by those who worked with him and those who worked for him. He was dependable. Put him in charge of a project, he'd always deliver. Whether it was closing the deal, accurate analysis, or grasping the intricacies of the contract, you'd love him on your team, not that he'd ever join you, because he worked in the country and not in the city. And on this day, just like every other day, he was out on the family farm, directing the laborers and farmhands, sowing, gathering, shepherding. And on this day, just like every other day, at the end of a hard day's work, he trudged his way back up the hill to the family home. But on this day, unlike any other day, as he got closer and closer to the family mansion, end of verse 25, he could hear the faint sound of music and the hubbub of of a gathering of people celebrating and dancing. There was a huge party going on, a party that he knew nothing about. And so he got out his mobile, verse 26, and he called one of the servants and asked them about the party. And the servant said, oh, haven't you heard, verse 27? Your brother's come home and your father's killed the fattened calf because he's back safe and sound. And the older son was furious, verse 28. He was angry, refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I've served you, I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me even a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes home, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Just put yourself in the brother's shoes for a moment. Look, it's just not fair, he says. That little rat of a son of yours has been rude and reckless with your stuff. He's treated you like trash and then treated himself to trash. And in the process, he's blown half the family fortune. And then the moment the money runs out, he comes crawling back and you welcome him home and throw him a party and kill the fattened calf. He's livid. And here is the really striking thing. Last week, we were celebrating the amazing love and kindness and generosity of the Father. We were celebrating the fact that the Father welcomed back people who were so wayward, so stubborn, so insubordinate, so rude, so rebellious, so offensive, and so insulting. And as we saw the Father welcome back the younger son with open arms and unconditional love, the amazing grace of God blew us away. Well, it did me, and from many of the conversations I've had with you since last week, it blew you away too. So just three verses earlier in the story, we found our hearts singing about amazing grace and the love of God. But clearly not everybody feels the same way. I think back to a meal with a message that I was asked to speak at a few years back. A couple who were part of the church that I was at at the time invited family and friends to their house. There must have been 15 or 20 of us squeezed into their little front room. And over canapes and a glass of something delicious, we exchanged small talk. And, and while the, the husband then quietened the room by um, just tapping his glass, uh, he welcomed everyone, introduced me to his guests, and invited me to give a five-minute thought about Jesus. Uh, the floor was then open for questions. One question led to another and gave me the chance to explain some more of the sort of thing we were thinking about last week, how Jesus' death on the cross meant that no matter who you are or what you've done, you can come back and be forgiven, accepted into God's family, be sure of spending all eternity with him. And someone said to me, you mean absolutely anyone can be forgiven? I said, yes, isn't that brilliant? No, he said, that is horrible. In fact, I find that really offensive. 
And then he went on to list the worst kinds of people he could imagine in society, murderers, terrorists, sex offenders. He named then the most wicked, tyrannical rulers in history who'd caused unimaginable terror to millions of people, Hitler, Pol Pot, Idi Amin. And then as he got more and more steamed up, he said, you're saying that these despots can live like that and then they can come back to God and they'll go to heaven. That is scandalous. The extraordinary love and grace of God is a very real problem for many people. And this is not just a philosophical issue for many. It's deeply personal. It was for the older brother. His little brother's action had had huge impact on him. Listen to what he says to his father in verse 29. I've served you. I've slaved away for you while he's been out partying. And in the process, he's blown half the family fortune, verse 30, poured all your assets down the drain at the brothel. And end of verse 30, you kill the fattened calf for him. This was personal. Just as it would have been for the many people who saw Jesus with tax collectors and sinners, prostitutes. These tax collectors had done stuff that had ruined others financially. And arguably, the prostitutes were complicit in wrecking marriages and breaking up family, family homes. The people Jesus was hanging out with had caused a lot of pain and hurt and suffering. This was not a purely academic issue. And so the tax collectors and sinners rejoiced in the grace of God, rejoicing that they could be welcomed back. And the Pharisees and scribes, the moral, respectable, religious types, hated it. Like the older son in the story, it made their blood boil, verse 28. He was angry, so angry, verse 28, he refused to go into the party. And that is very significant. Staying outside, refusing to go into the party, was a refusal to welcome his brother home, but it was more than that. It was also a protest against the father. To stay outside was to reject the father. You see, in verse 28, the father pleaded with him to go into the party, but he refused. And so in staying outside, he was refusing to have anything to do with a God who welcomes sinners. And boom, there's the shock of the story. In telling this story, Jesus is saying to the Pharisees and scribes, your refusal to accept tax collectors and sinners is a rejection of the God who welcomes them home. As you refuse to accept that sinners can be welcomed back, back by God, you are refusing to have anything to do with the God who welcomes sinners. And if you refuse to have anything to do with the God who welcomes sinners, you are refusing to be accepted by God yourself because the truth is we are all sinners just that some of us are more respectable sinners than others. We may be moral and religious, but we've all rejected God. And so in verse 28, there is the older brother refusing to go in, and he's a picture of any religious or good moral person who hates the thought of God welcoming back bad people. You mean that absolutely anyone can be forgiven? That is horrible. I find that deeply offensive. Some people hate the gospel of forgiveness and grace, and as they do, they hate the God of the gospel of forgiveness and grace. Allow me, if you will, to spell it out as clearly as I can. This means that you can be very religious. You can go to church every week. More than that, you can serve in the church for years, verse 29, slaving away. 
You can be very moral, keeping God's laws, verse 29, never disobeying God's commands, at least outwardly, and in your own eyes, never disobeying God's commands. You can be a good, upright citizen, paying your taxes, never in trouble with the police, respected in the city. You can do all that and still be out in the cold when it comes to God. That is such a surprise to most people because this is not the way most people think. Here is why one story wrote, uh, one, one writer wrote of this story. This challenges what nearly everyone has ever thought about God. Because most people I speak to think that being good is what God wants of us. And that being good is what gets us into God's good books. I will never forget visiting a dear widow to prepare her husband's funeral. I, I've done it many times. But on this occasion, they'd been married for over 60 years. And the pain and heartbreak of his death was palpable. As she told me about her husband, she said he wasn't a religious man, Vicar, but he was a good man, so he's in heaven now, isn't he? Can you hear it? Being good is what God wants, isn't it? Being good is how we get to heaven, isn't it? That's the way most people think, and that's what most people think Christianity teaches. But that is not the Christian gospel at all, and it's not what Jesus taught. The Christian gospel is not about making the grade, but it's about accepting the grace of God. Christianity is not about rule-keeping or religion. It's about being brought into a relationship with God. And so this story challenges what nearly everyone has ever thought about God as it shatters our categories Look, in, in the younger brother who we saw last week, Jesus gives us a description of sin that just about everyone would recognize. But the older brother's sin so much harder to spot and so much harder to recognize in ourselves and therefore in so many ways so much more dangerous to our spiritual well-being. Note two things about the older brother. He has a sense of entitlement and a sense of superiority. Look again at verse 29. He said to his father, look, these many years I've served you, I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours comes home, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fattened calf for him. Do you hear the entitlement in verse 29? I've slaved away for you. I've kept your commands. I deserve the fattened calf, but you haven't even given me a scrawny goat to have a barbecue with my friends. He thinks his good life means the father owes him. He was a good man, vicar, so he's in heaven now, isn't he? And once you think like that, when you think you're entitled, you will feel superior, superior to those who haven't made the grade. Verse 29, I've served you and obeyed you. But verse 30, this waste man of a son of yours comes home and you give him the fattened calf. What's that about? When we feel superior and proud of ourselves, we will be dismissive of others. It becomes horrible the way that that works out. We relate to others badly. And we will hate the fact that Jesus is the friend of sinners. Because they've done nothing to deserve God's forgiveness while we've been slaving away, serving him and obeying him all our lives. The preacher and writer Tim Keller says that this, in this story, we see Jesus' radical definition of what is wrong with us. 
We can be morally outwardly respectable. And as Keller says, be every bit as spiritually lost as the most profligate, immoral person. You see, younger brothers know they're not living as they should, probably. But because older brothers consider themselves to be respectable and good, that is precisely what keeps them from ever coming to God for forgiveness or ever throwing themselves on the mercy of God or ever thinking they need the grace of God. And so they stay out in the cold, warming themselves with the blanket of their own self-righteousness. There is so much more that could be said about the older brother types. We, we could do another three weeks just on him, but we don't have time if you'd like to think more about this, then uh, let me commend to you this book, The Prodigal God by, by Tim Keller. I've uh, read it in preparation over these weeks, and, and I've loved it. And uh, We have a couple of copies on the bookstall. For now, this says, beware the older brother in you. Relying on your goodness is a rejection of the God of the gospel of grace, and it will leave you out in the cold, alienated from the Father forever. And even if you have truly turned to Jesus in repentance and faith, and I know that's many of you here, beware of the Pharisee in your heart. Beware of the older brother in you. As I've prepared this week, I have seen so much of the older brother in me, and it is horrible. And I've recognized so much of it in the church. And on that, if you've been on the receiving end of this kind of religious self-righteousness and it has put you off Jesus, well, then let me thank you for coming here today. And let me assure you that what has put you off Jesus is not genuine Christianity. It's a horrible form of religion pretending to be Christian. And that becomes very evident when we look secondly and far more briefly on the handout at the selfless father and son. Here is what has really blown me away this week. The father wants the older son back. Last week, we saw it with the younger son, the father running with arms open wide to welcome him back. Here it is again, this time with the older son. The father is, is tender, full of grace towards him. The older son has insulted the father by refusing to go into the party. His words have expressed such contempt for the father. They are dripping with resentment. In verse 29, he says to his father, look, it's terse and rude. It's kind of, look you, these many years I've served you. That's the feeling there. But despite his contempt for his father, there is such love from the father. Again, see what the father doesn't do. The father doesn't ignore the son. He doesn't dismissively say, I'll oh, just leave him. He's the one missing out. He doesn't turn to his guests and mock him. Oh, look at him. He's always been a bit like this. He didn't turn to his wife and say, he's such a self-righteous, mean-spirited, ungrateful little so-and-so. There's none of that. Verse 28, the father leaves the celebration, goes out to the son and entreats him, pleads with him to come in. Once again, just as we saw last week, here is God making the first move. And when we remember that the older son represents the Pharisees and scribes, this is almost unbelievable. The Pharisees are going to hand Jesus over to the Roman authorities. And Jesus will be mocked and shamefully treated and spat upon and then crucified. The Pharisees hate Jesus, and yet here is the father wanting them back, pleading with them to come in. 
And as we draw to a close, we see even more of the love of God as we look back to the story immediately before this one, the story of the lost coins. Just to turn back to verses 8 to 10. With this, we'll close. For years, I've wondered why Jesus tells two parables that appear to be basically the same. The story of the lost sheep in verses 3 to 7, followed by the story of the lost coins in verses 8 to 10. For years, I thought they were just two illustrations making the same point. But remember the two groups in verses 1 and 2. In verse 1, the tax collectors and sinners were miles away from God. So in verses 3 to 7, Jesus tells a story about a shepherd leaving his flock and going miles to find his lost sheep. But then in verse 2, there's the Pharisees and the scribes, and we know they're lost too. And so in verses 8 to 10, Jesus tells a story about looking for lost coins that are, verse 8, you see it there, in the house. The story of the lost coins is about the Pharisees, who, like the older brother, never left home. The Pharisees and scribes who are always hanging around God's house, in and out of the temple every day. And so this is beautiful. The story of the lost coins says that Jesus wants to find and save the Pharisees and the scribes. Jesus wants to find and save the the very people who want him dead. And amazingly, the death they sent Jesus to would be the very means by which Jesus could save them. You couldn't make it up. And so here are father and son, both treated shamefully by the Pharisees and the scribes. Yet here they are making the greatest sacrifice in order to bring back their greatest enemies. And then telling us in verse 10 that heaven would rejoice if only they'd return. What grace, what love, what a God. Let me lead us in a prayer. Now, Father, once again, we are amazed that you're like this, that those who are so self-righteous, those who are so full of themselves, so full of their own goodness, and yet so awful towards you, you'd have them back. And so we thank you that just as we saw last week, that no one is beyond the pale, that there's a chance for everyone to come back to you and We thank you that you do go to the most extreme lengths to bring us back. And we pray for everyone here, those who've never come back to you and those of us who have, but have started to wander, that we'd come back to you afresh today and enjoy uh, the wonderful love that only you have for all people. In Jesus' name, amen.